Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And welcome to We Are History. I'm John O'Farrell. And I'm Angela Barr. Sorry, I've got bits of... We've just had a granola bar and they're really in my teeth. That's right. That's probably much this, this is all live radio. Not I, live, I, I worry that people can hear the granola bar as I I've speak. I've got to look at them. I've got little bits of seed coming out between <laughs> their mouth. Just flying <laughs> at each other across the table. Um, this week, granola bars aside, Angela has chosen our story and surprise prize. It's about bloody Germany again, Angela. You know, well, I have just been to Berlin, John, and our Patreon listeners will know that if they've watched our Berlin, my little Berlin photo album. Angela's slideshow. And, God, you uh, missed a tree there, guys. twice in this podcast. Um, but so this is a story that was definitely inspired by my recent trip to Berlin. Yes. And a book that I read um, by Labour MP Chris Bryant, actually. Sir, he's a mate Sir of yours, Chris isn't he? Is he? Sir Chris Bryant. Now, he yes, is, you're yes. right. He's a mate mine actually well I sort of know him a bit and he's mm. always been very nice about things can only get better and he chose it as one of his books best ever books in the week oh that's so thank nice. you Chris ah oh, thank you well I hope he likes this episode yeah um, it is very much based on the book that he wrote that's called The Glamour Boys oh, yes. um, as yeah. always please get the book and read it it is so fascinating and there's so much in it that I couldn't fit in the pot. My original notes for this podcast episode was about 40 pages <laughs> so I've, I've tried to pick out the the you know, the highlights, the but there's loads bits. more in it, so please do read the book. So what's it all about, Angie? So, <laughs> I like it, I see what you did. Um, so basically, it's a story of a group of MPs in the 1930s, many of whom were gay and bisexual, and they were really among the first people in Britain to stand up and warn the government about the threat that Hitler posed to peace in Europe. And this is at a time when the general mood was not only to appease Hitler, but certainly among right-leaning members of the government to support Hitler. Right. Even. I mean, generally, it's Churchill and Anthony Eden that are credited with the stand against Chamberlain's actions. Uh, but they were part of a wider group of MPs in opposition to appeasement. And many of these ones have sort of been written out of history. Is that right? Yeah, they have a bit. And the reasons why will be obvious. In fact, before we get going, I think it might be good to just say a little something here about terminology and stuff that we use. Because neither of us, as far as I know, John, identify as part of the LGBT. Q plus community. So I, I just want to say I'm I'm taking guidance for the language we use here very much from Chris Bryant himself from his book, right? And um and and an interview I've heard him do about it. Um, oh, so yes. we'll, we'll come on to it as we go. But you know, hopefully, anyone listening who is a part of that community. Hopefully we're not saying anything that is in any it, way... It, it all keeps changing, Angela, anyway. <laughs> in the period we're talking about, 20s and 30s, homosexuality was illegal. 
and sodomy had been illegal for centuries. But in 1885, the Labouchere Amendment, Section 11 of the Criminal Law Amendment Act, made it gross indecency a crime. And in practice, this law was used to prosecute male homosexuals where actual sodomy couldn't be proved. Exactly. Up till that point, sodomy was illegal, but they wanted a way to make any sort of homosexual relationships illegal. Yes. So by calling it gross indecency, obviously that's very vague and open to interpretation. I mean, one man's gross indecency is another man's Friday night, right? So, so, so yourself, we got to the point where even <laughs> writing a suggestive letter could get you arrested. Right. And in fact, that was the law that both Oscar Wilde and Alan Turing were convicted under. Wow, wow. Um, and so it wasn't a safe or easy time to be homosexual. And also the concept of homosexuality as it's understood today didn't really exist in the same way. Right. And Chris Bryant says in his book that probably if he met the men that he's talking about in the book today, they wouldn't necessarily agree with being called homosexual. It wasn't something you inherently were. It was maybe something that you did sometimes. Okay. And there were other words that they would have used for it. They wouldn't have used the hom word homosexual at all, probably. They would have used um, something called earning was a way. It was, that was from a, a sort of theory in the early 20th century called Iranian theory, okay. which was to do with, you know, the theory was that it was a woman in a man's body and all these other ways of looking at it. Another word that they used was inversion. But they probably wouldn't have seen themselves as homosexual in the way we understand it today. Okay. So Chris Bryant uses the word queer to talk about them, though at the time this would have had disparaging connotations. That's what I was trying to mm. sort of hint at. And it's a word that newspaper headlines used about these MPs at the time. These men were sometimes married, but would conduct simultaneous homosexual relationships, sometimes with their spouses' knowledge, sometimes not. Yeah, so it's hard to describe because I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth with regards to how they would have identified themselves. But the men we're talking about were known to have had same-sex relationships. And it was challenging at that time to be gay or bisexual yes. in Britain. But London had its share of spaces where homosexual men felt comfortable and free. Is that right? Cafes and mm. bars, Turkish baths and so on. But there was always the fear of an undercover policeman. Absolutely. And and sort of as the 30s went on, that really ramped up the prosecutions. Um, and there were places like, for example, the German street baths were very famous, Turkish baths. Wow. And they were known as, amongst gay men, they were known as the Savoy, so that you could talk about going to the Savoy and anyone listening in would think you were going to the hotel or the grill. I see. Um, because if you were caught, you could be sentenced to two years in prison, hard labour, but that's not it, of course. You then got to deal out with the family shame, losing your career, your home, everything. So discretion was really important. And in 1927, there was a book that was written by an anonymous author who called themselves Anomaly. And it was okay. called The Invert and His Social Adjustment. And basically, it was a sort of handbook on how to be a homosexual without getting caught. It's things like being discreet using female pronouns to discuss your lovers. Don't be too meticulous in the way that you dress because that was often used as a sign of somebody wow. being homosexual if they were a bit of a natty dresser. Yeah. Don't let your enthusiasm for particular male friends make you conspicuous. Wow. If you knew where to look and how to go about it, uh, you could certainly find men who wanted to have sex with men. Mm. Um, there, were, there was plenty of company to be had with people were in the know and tolerant. Yeah, and obviously more bohemian artists, literary communities, they were more accepting. And so there were places where people were safe to be more open, more houses, more like me, new places. Exactly. Musical theatre, writers, we're the tolerant ones. Exactly. Artists, basically. Right. You're pretty safe in the I'm arts. I'm gay adjacent in my job. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's right. So who are the glamour boys of the title of this episode? Well, let's start in 1931. 
uh, it's Ramsay McDonald's national government. Oh so, John, I feel like as our Labour Party historian, you might want to say something about that. No, the national no. government. Well, Ramsay MacDonald had uh, won the election um, before this and was a Labour prime minister. You think, hurrah, Labour prime minister. But he's very uh, minority government, a massive financial crisis. And instead of calling an election or trying to force the issue, he joins with the Conservatives, keeps himself as prime minister, mm-hmm. sort of destroys the Labour Party in the process and um, forms national government with them. Of course, they spit him up and use him, kick him out as soon as they're ready. Yeah. Um, but it destroys the Labour Party. And in 19 1935, the Labour Party completely wiped out and he is a stain on the history of the Labour Party ever since. I thought you might have something to say about it, John. I just gave that over to you. So in this government, this national government, about (laughs) 42.5% of the Conservative MPs in that government were bachelors. Bachelors, is that heavy inverted commas you put on that? It's one of those words, isn't it? It's um, we all know what confirmed bachelor means. Yeah. Now, of course, what the statistics mean is they were unmarried, and unmarried yeah. doesn't necessarily mean homosexual. Uh, but forty-two percent of unmarried men was a much higher figure than the general population. Okay. So, in the general population, twenty-seven percent of men were unmarried, and that figure includes those that have been married before and weren't at right. that time. So. It's a much, much higher number of unmarried men in the conservative ranks of that government. It reminds me of something I once read an interview with, you know, Armistead Maupin, the writer. And he said, years ago in England, I said, scratch a Tory and you'll find a homo. (laughs) I was wildly generalising. But if you do want to keep the lid on your own secret life, the best way of doing it is to insist others be as pure as you're pretending to be. Right, it's that denial too much thing, isn't it? It's like the American preachers who are sort of, you know, having off with everyone now. Absolutely. Um, Yes. Uh, And the papers every now and then would use the bachelorhood of these MPs to raise doubts about them, wouldn't they? Yeah. So if you were a bachelor MP, regardless of your sexuality, but, you know, chances are for a lot of them were homosexual, you have to have your reason ready for the press as to why you remain unmarried. You need to excuse. I've just never found the one. Yeah. I'm taking some time to learn to love myself. Exactly. That sort of (laughs) thing. I quite practice this. So is it a coincidence that Parliament had such a high proportion of bachelors? Well, Chris Bryan, who is a gay MP himself, yes. obviously, um, he describes Parliament of the time as being homosocial, good, is the word that he is. used. So, you know, out of 615 seats in Parliament at the time, there's only 15 female MPs in 1931 and only nine in 1935. Uh, yeah, so if your man likes the company of other men, it's pretty much an ideal place to be, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. And they've gone from public school to... Part, you know, which is pretty much saying. the same. I hear what you're saying, same, Angela. Isn't it? <laughs> so, the main protagonists of this story are a group of MPs that came together for a common purpose in the House of Commons around 1935. So give us a bit of background on them, Angela. Okay, so the first of them is Robert Bernays. So, he became a Liberal MP for Bristol North in 1931. He's probably out of the men we're talking about, the least comfortable in his own sexuality. He had a stammer that really affected his confidence. He'd been a speechwriter for well-known uh, homosexual Earl Beecham, who'd been disgraced and had been forced to live in a sort of homosexual exile. He had been a governor of New South Wales. Wow. And um, rather than face prison, he chose to live really in exile. So Bernays knew that there could be extreme consequences for your reputation. He travelled with this man and and realised that, you know, his lack of discretion was his downfall, really. I see. And yeah. so he knew what happened if people found out you were homosexual. And he, I don't think there's any evidence in the book that Bernays actually was a practising wow. 
homosexual. I don't. I don't know. But well, um, who knows? And that's what come to see. Bernays was really the first person in Parliament to raise alarm about Hitler's intentions in Germany. He was. He really was. He was. Um, he was also close friends with Harold Nicholson, oh, yeah. who had entered government in 1935 as a member of National Labour, winning Leicester West. He'd actually previously stood for his pal Oswald Mosley's New Party. Oh, we have a podcast about that. We do have a podcast episode about that. Listen to that. Hurrah for the black shirts! Mm. And um, Harold was actually married to novelist and journalist Vita Sackville West. Ah, yes. Now they famously had a pretty open marriage, didn't they? Both yeah. of them having homosexual affairs. She famously had a relationship with Virginia Woolf. She did, amongst others, yeah. And then there was Victor Kazanet. He was a wealthy Conservative MP for Chippenham. Ah, yes, godfather to Churchill's youngest daughter and to Elizabeth Taylor, of yes, course. Yes, indeed. Um, then there was Jack McNamara. Uh, he'd been in the Indian Army as a young man, then in the London Irish Rifles, uh, where it was said quite a lot of the officers in the regiment were gay, but nobody really thought much of it at the time. Um, he had a long-term partner, Paddy, who would act as his manservant in public to sort of avoid right. suspicion. But he also had this friendship, stroke relationship, stroke arrangement with a married Anglican archdeacon who was called Herbert Sharp. And Jack McNamara seems to be financially reliant on Herbert Sharp. And Herbert Sharp is sort of uh, accompanies him on lots of trips abroad and things. Also, interestingly, as a little aside, after he was elected, Jack McNamara, he looked for the services of a young man to be his speechwriter and parliamentary assistant. And do you know who he ended up employing? Uh, I do, actually. I do know this because yeah. it's written in your notes. Uh, it was Guy Burgess, <laughs> one of the Guy Cambridge Burgess? spies. Uh, there's a whole other stories there. We've never actually done a thing. Amazingly, we we've I've never done it. I've pitched it a few times, but never actually got around to it. Maybe I'll do that next. Maybe we should do that next maybe time because will. that is uh, sort of uh, seems to be like complete the set of the Cold War stories. Yeah, maybe I will. Um, who else, Angela? Who else? So you had um, Ronnie Cartland, who Ooh. was younger brother of famous novelist Barbara Cartland. That's hilarious. He was only in his 20s when he was elected in 1935 as a Conservative MP for Kings Norton in Birmingham. The Cartlands were Conservative. I, I don't know. <laughs> I know. What a shock. At this time Barbara was a sort of um, gossip columnist she was very yes. woman about town and yeah, pretty cool and he girl. was a little bit in her shadow I think wow um, but they were very close and then there was Bob Boothby he was the Conservative MP for Aberdeen. He publicly claimed not to be gay but and, and he actually had a 30-year affair with Harold Macmillan's wife but he definitely had had some same-sex relationships at Oxford. Okay. Well, he, I think he's, there was a quote where he says something like, yeah, but everyone's gay at Oxford. <laughs> like, you know, oh, something okay. like that. I wouldn't know. And um, he once successfully sued the Sunday Mirror for saying that he'd had a relationship with Ronnie Cray. But it later turned out from some MI5 files that they definitely did go to gay parties together. Like everyone in, in the olden Cray. days knew each other, didn't Isn't they? It? <laughs> it's like it Ronnie only, Cray. <laughs> well, it was just because I suppose if you had any money, then you did, and everyone right. else was just poor Ronnie, and, Taylor walks on, you yeah. know, Ronnie Cray walks in. Yeah, exactly. Like, like, sort of... There's Cambridge spies walking around. It's, a, it's insane. Sorry, yeah. you continue. And there were other people in the group of rebels, but these are the main focus of, of this book and the story yeah. we're doing Yeah, today. so we're in Britain in the early 1930s, and the feeling is broadly, it's quite pro-Germany mm. at this point. I mean, I think there's a sense of... Uh, Desperate not to repeat another war after all the suffering that everyone went through. Yep. Felt that the Treaty of Versailles was overly punitive, the financial reparations, territorial concessions and so on. Yep. Also, Britain was struggling economically and needed good relations with one of Europe's biggest markets, I guess. Yeah, exactly. So many people felt that the way to avoid war in Europe, which is what everyone wanted, yes. was through mutual disarmament. 
And certainly that was the feeling in Parliament. The majority were against any expenditure of building up arms at that yeah. time. It's more than 10 years after the war. Germany is a place that many British politicians like to visit. Well, they do because, John, it's the time of Weimar Berlin. Welcome, and, you know, bienvenue, welcome. Exactly. It's cabaret. It's Christopher Isherwood and WH Warden hanging out in transgender bars. It's sexual freedom, jazz permissiveness. Berlin was the place to be, and especially for a gay man about town. I went to the Peak District at the weekend. <laughs> not the same, <laughs> no, It's John. not the same. Not the same. <laughs> uh, homosexuality was also illegal in Germany, of course, according to paragraph 175 of the German Criminal Code. But it was sort of more tolerated, especially in the cities. Yeah, any Patreon subscribers listening that did see my Berlin slideshow, you might remember one of the clubs in Berlin that was quite famous was the El Dorado, very popular with transgender people and gay people in Berlin, and also pretty popular with British politicians. I, if I remember rightly from your photos, it's now a posh supermarket. That's the one. And there's actually on Netflix, I do recommend you watch it, there's a documentary called El Dorado, and I can't remember what the... There's another line, something like the things the Nazis hated or something. But it's about that club and, and what happened to it. So do go and watch that. It's really interesting. And there was, of course, the failed BBC soap opera called El Dorado. Don't watch that. <laughs> is my advice. Do Don't watch that. That's got nothing to do with any Weimar Berlin. Um, so during this period, there's quite a lot of British people heading to Berlin and other German cities for their sexual adventures. John. Yes. But while all this is happening, there is another Germany. Um, Hitler is starting to rise in popularity and he's appealing to the Germans that don't live in big cities, that aren't young and sexually liberated, and that are still poor and hungry after fighting and losing a war. Yes. And um, funnily enough, though, John, although the Nazis officially condemned homosexuality, in the early days, there were a surprising amount of openly gay Nazis. And a lot of them were stormtroopers, the you know the paramilitary wing of the Nazi party. Yeah. And the co-founder and leader of the SA, the Sturmabteilung, was a man called Ernst Röhm. Röhm? Yes, no, he's and famous. He yeah. was a sort of hardcore psychopathic murderer and double hard bastard. Like, he was proper... He um, committed what they called the Femme murders, you know, like would just murder people ruthlessly if they felt they disagreed politically. And it's a bit like the leader of the Wagner group who just copped it in Russia, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he, you know, he wasn't a, a, a nice man, I don't think. No. Uh, he was a decorated World War One fighter. He took part in the 1923 Beer Hall putsch. Yes. And as leader of the SA, he led this campaign of political violence against communist Jews and other groups that were deemed hostile. Right. But he was also openly homosexual. Wow. He even wrote about it in his 1928 autobiography. He referred to himself as same-sex oriented. Wow. And he built these barracks for the SA um, that became known as the Brown House. They were the brown shirts, of course. They were the brown shirts, yeah. 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 And um, and it seemed to be quite a palace of homoeroticism by the way people describe it, you know, full of gyms, full of live Nazis okay. working out. And yeah. Uh, and Hitler seemed to have a sort of do what you like in private life, just don't shout about it attitude to gay Nazis at this stage. Uh, he knew that attempts had been made to blackmail Rom, but they were still close friends, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was always the biggest worry about you know, people in power that were homosexual. It's why a lot of spies end up being homosexual because they're recruited because they can be blackmailed. Right. Um, 
So, yeah, the stormtroopers were happy, though, to be seen in the El Dorado bar and other bars well into the 1930s. Yeah, and the British politicians knew them and hung out with them, and some of them started to see things that made them think, well, maybe these Nazis uh, weren't good guys. Yeah, exactly. In 1932, in fact, as early as that, Bob Boothby, he was actually invited to meet Hitler on one of his trips to Berlin. And this line in his autobiography sort of made me laugh a bit. He talks about this meeting with Hitler. And he says, Hitler sprang to his feet, lifted his right arm and shouted, Hitler. I responded by clicking my heels together, raising my right arm and shouting back, Boothby. (laughs) (laughs) Such a lovely image. This is great. But he did also write that he came away from that meeting seeing quote, the unmistakable glint of madness in his eyes. And the meeting convinced him pretty early compared to most of the government in Britain that maybe Hitler wasn't on the right track and maybe they weren't on the right track when it came to dealing with Germany. Wow, love that story. Um, A few months later, uh, Rob Bernays went to Germany in his capacity as a journalist. Uh, He was even there at the Reichstag on the 12th of September 1932 for the key meeting when Goering allowed communists to table a motion of no confidence in Chancellor Papen, which carried. Yeah. And Bernays wrote then that the communists should have been more reluctant to vote with the Nazis, quote, for they were next to meet in the concentration camps with Nazis as guards, which is pretty prophetic. Oh, yeah, blimey. Yeah. Uh, he also warned that Germany was rearming. He noted that pacifism had become a crime in Germany. He'd even seen a man beaten up for refusing to sell tin soldiers in his shop. Yeah, so him and Boothby, they were there. They were hanging out in these places and they seemed to be the first British politicians who came back distrustful of Hitler and concerned about the prospect of what was happening in war. Then, of course, 30th of Jan, 1933, Hitler becomes Chancellor. Yes, so Bernays goes back to Germany the following year and on his trip he was taken to see Breslau concentration camp that was set up for, inverted commas, protective custody. And in the camps he saw forced labour and he noted that the inmates he spoke to would trot out the same line over and over again about being well-fed and cared for. And he wrote when he got back, um, he said, we have seen no evidence of cruelty and yet we had the haunting sensation of nameless evil in that camp. And again, quite prophetically, he wrote, if this spirit is allowed to continue, it means war in 10 years. Like we said in Britain, the mood remained fairly pro-German or certainly pro-peace. Other politicians visiting at this time didn't seem concerned by Hitler or what was happening. And Britain still wanted to give Hitler the benefit of the doubt in 1933. Yeah. So, in fact, Jack McNamara and Victor Casale at this point, Jack McNamara was not an MP yet, but he was working to push Anglo-German relations. They had an Anglo-German association. They were really pushing to foster relations between the two countries. Casale, on one of his visits to Germany, he actually asked to go and see the concentration camp at Dachau that Himmler had just converted from an old munitions factory. And he wrote of it then. He said, great fun. Great fun. I visited the concentration camp. It was not very interesting. Quite well run. No undue misery or discomfort. And it would take some quite profound personal experiences later on to really change their minds. I mean, that might be a good place to take a break, Angela. Um, And we'll come back and find out what happens next. Welcome back to We Are History, where we are talking about the group of MPs that led the charge against Nazi Germany and British politics. Yes, we're now in 1934. 
Britain remains not overly concerned about what Hitler's up to, despite Rob Bernays reporting back on concentration camps and the treatment of Jewish people that he's witnessing on his trips. Yeah, you have to remember that Britain also has a pretty major share of anti-Semitic sentiment itself. Mm. Lord Rothermere had written that editorial in the Daily Mail headlined, Hurrah for the Black Shirts, calling on the nation to back Moses' union of fascists. Yes, we also did an episode on that, John, which you can go back and listen to. Um, The Sunday Pictorial even ran a competition to find Britain's prettiest fascists. Anyone from GB News listening to this, (laughs) that'll be a feature on their breakfast show by Thursday. Yes. So Robin Hayes didn't take long to condemn the article. He called it a fascist call for dictatorship. So he's really swimming against the tide. Yeah, but fascism was embraced by many on the right and there were plenty of advocates of uh, anti-Semitism, on the Commons benches, with the 16 Jewish MPs in the House often bearing the brunt of it. Yeah, and this continued long after news of Hitler's treatment of Jewish people reaching Britain. Yeah. Meanwhile, in Germany, Hitler was ramping up his campaigns of violence. Stormtroopers were stirring up brutality on the streets. Ernst Rom had grown the SA from 60,000 to 427,000 members in just 18 months. Yeah, that's crazy, isn't it? But but Hitler was starting to have a problem with these openly gay Nazis, uh, not least because his political opposition had started using it against him. So where he'd been tolerant of it before, things changed. So the left-wing SPD, they'd published an article entitled Homosexuality in the Brown House, Sexual Life of the Third Reich. And they published these leaked private letters that Rohm had written to a psychologist about his sexuality. So by this time, the SS... The Schurstaffel, or Protection Squadron, led by Himmler, had a significant increase in power. They knew something had to be done about the problem, and that solution came on the Night of the Long Knives. Yes, from the 30th of June 1934 until the 2nd of July. Yes, now this is my big problem with the Night of the Long Knives, Angela. I mean, it's not that loads of innocent people were murdered in cold blood. It was not one night. It was several nights, and it that's what really bugs me about Three days of it. the Long Knives doesn't roll off the tongue quite as easily, does it, John? It's so upsetting. So the Night of the Long Knives, three days of the Long Knives, was um, Hitler had ordered a series of extrajudicial murders intended to help him alleviate these troublesome forces and consolidate his power, right. egged on a lot by Himmler yeah. and the SS. So Ernst Röhm was amongst those killed that night. And these reprisals took place around the country. Yes, and of course, because the Nazis dominated the Reichstag, uh, they declared the executions all legal. Yeah, absolutely fine, nothing to see here. I mean, they, were, they killed people, they got the wrong name with some people, they killed them. Mm. Hitler had someone killed because he had an abridged version of Mein Kampf without asking him. So this writer was killed on the night of the long knives. He was a bit mad, I think. Do you think Hitler was mad? Oh, what I'm a gonna, revelation. I'm going to put it out there. I'm going to put it out I don't know, John. I'm going to wait and see what happens. <laughs> so what happens? You so, tell me. The Nazis then begin this unambiguous campaign against homosexuality. And they are shutting down the clubs and bars that the Weimar Republic had been famous for. Um, There was the picture that I showed you in my little slideshow uh, that our Patreon members might have seen. The sign outside the El Dorado that was replaced with the one that said, vote Hitler. Right. Yes. Um, Gestapo units were set up just to deal with homosexuality. Homosexuals were sent to concentration camps. Um, were often chemically castrated, God. Yeah, and in the camps they were labelled with a large black dot initially or the number 175 from the paragraph of the criminal code and eventually, of course, with pink triangles. Which are now worn, of course, as a badge of pride by gay Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Many of these people were lost to history. They often had no family or community to remember them. Uh, because their families didn't want to be tainted with the shame of homosexuality. It's the really sad thing about 
you know, the gay people that were locked up. Even in 1960, the mayor of Dachau was asked whether there should be a memorial to those who'd perished in the concentration camps. And he replied, you must remember that many criminals and homosexuals were also in Dachau. Do you want a memorial for such people? And back in Britain, the Times newspaper referred to the attacks on the Night of the Long Knives, the attacks particularly on the homosexuals, as clearing up. Wow. Yeah. Um, It was the following year in the 1935 election that Jack McNamara, Ronnie Cartland and Harold Nicholson were elected to Parliament and provided Rob Bernays with three new parliamentary friends. Yes, and now there's this nucleus of gay MPs in the House. And of course, for these men in Parliament... They've been coming to Germany for their sexual adventures for the last 10 years. So those people being cleared up, as the Times put it, were their friends or their lovers or the people they hung out with in the bars that they hung out in. And so the Germany that they knew and they got to know over 10 years since the war was changing. And over the next few years... For them, the political was becoming really personal. They were seeing the changes firsthand. For example, Ronnie Cartland and his sister Barbara, they visited Germany and they were horrified by what they saw, particularly the things that were happening to Jewish people. They were horrified by seeing the Hitler Youth marching and Barbara was horrified by signs telling women not to wear makeup. Imagine telling Barbara Cartland not to wear makeup. Too far now, Hitler. Too far. (laughs) You've crossed a line. Um, Yeah. So Harold Nixon's friend, Kurt Wagenseel, was sent to camp for being homosexual. He survived, but told Harold things that he had seen. Yep. Um, Victor Kazalet, he was a great tennis player and he'd met a German tennis player called Gottfried von Kram while he was playing at Wimbledon. Yeah. And von Kram was technically everything the Nazis wanted in a poster boy. He was tall, blonde hair, blue eyes, champion sportsman, but he completely refused to join the Nazis, which went against him. Um, And he refused, not least because he was homosexual and his lover was a Jewish man named Manasi Herbst, uh, called himself Manfred to try and be less Jewish. And Kazalek actually helped von Kram to get Herbst out of Germany. He got him to Portugal first and then he went on to Palestine. We don't know exactly how, probably by sending money, but we know that he, you know, Victor Kanzler was part of helping him to get away. And von Kram eventually was in prison for being homosexual and having a Jewish lover. Wow. Um, Kasler, who had not been troubled by what was happening when he went to Dachau a couple of years before, was now seeing exactly how it affected his friends. Exactly. Uh, Yet for the most part, British politicians uh, remained unconcerned. By 1935, Hitler had built up the Luftwaffe and reintroduced conscription, directly contravening the Treaty of Versailles. But they still thought he was uh, in his rights to do that. Yeah. Then in March 1936, Germany's forces enter the Rhineland, which was an absolute finger up to the Treaty of Versailles, because the Rhineland was this demilitarised zone protected by the treaty to offer protection to Belgium and France. Yeah. And Hitler just remilitarizes it. And do the Brits leap into action, well, Angela? No. Their response is still really muted. And the then Foreign Secretary Anthony Eden, he didn't think it was a move that implied any sort of hostility. Britain largely saw it as Germany just reoccupying its own territory. Yeah. By chance, the first British politician to visit the Rhineland was Jack McNamara. He went with Guy Burgess... Uh, Herbert Sharp, he's clergyman in tow everywhere, you know, and another young homosexual man. So they went over there for their usual mix of political reconnaissance and sexy times. I think you should say that in Borat's voice. Sexy times. times. (laughs) And their trip included a visit to Dachau. And Jack's reports of what he saw there were very different to what Victor Casale had said 
before. And the regime had changed, you see, and terror was now a systemic part of their operations. And they were shocked by the amount of clergy, the amount of homosexuals being held in segregation. Torture and humiliation were now part of daily life. Jewish people were being paid to inform on each other. Anti-Semitic literature was being left around for non-Jewish inmates to read, to cause them to turn on the Jewish inmates. And Jack had this intrinsic belief in personal freedom. And he wrote, I have never seen human beings so cowed. He said, one of the most terrible things about it all is that people without influential friends actually disappear in the camps. Wow. So it's all very well for Kazalat and Nicholson to help their friends in trouble. But what about those without friends in high places? Yeah. Uh, Until this point, Jack, like many Conservative MPs, had been ambivalent about fascism. But now he is clear in his feelings about it. Yeah, absolutely. So he comes back. And in July 1936, Jack McNamara launches this attack in the Commons against anti-Semitism, of what he referred to as Jew-baiting. And in the Commons, he referred to anti-Semitic behaviour as ungentlemanly and very un-English. And people didn't like it because it was an anti-Semitic place at that time. And he apparently went to the Carlton Club straight after that debate and a member of Parliament spat at him, called him a Jew lover, and he never went to the Carlton again. So now this issue was personal for him too, for Jack McNamara. Incredible. And then, of course, the Spanish Civil War starts up, July 1936. We've got an episode about that, yeah. Yeah, I think yeah. that pretty well everything you mentioned in this episode, you've got an episode about that. Um, and it, it is seen by the British as a fight against communism, by much of the world, well, the British government at least. Um, and Baldwin's government adopts a policy of non-intervention. That's right. And then, of course, later that summer, it's the 1936 Olympics. Oh, yes. Uh, in my little slideshow, and some pictures of the Olympic we did. Stadium. We did. Now... Hitler's been wooing British politicians since he was came to power and before, really. But he really steps up his game at the Olympics. This is event is a perfect opportunity to show what the Nazis can do yeah. and really butter up some useful idiots. There's plenty of those turning yeah. up. Lavish receptions and so on. Large number of peers and MPs were invited to uh, the Olympics and the subsequent Nuremberg rally. And they lapped it up, some yeah. describing rallies as very moving. Yeah. And Jack McNamara, though, and Victor Cazalet were notable exceptions when just a couple of years earlier they would have been there in a heartbeat. Right. But something had changed in them. Yeah. And so while by the end of 1936, most MPs were more concerned about King Edward's affair with Wallace Simpson. We've got an episode about that. We have got an episode (laughs) about that. Uh, There was this group of MPs now swimming against the tide together, including Churchill, and by now Foreign Secretary Anthony Eden is really with them. Yeah. And they're campaigning for rearmament, for Britain to prepare for a war that might come. Yes. But in 1937, Stanley Baldwin retired. And on the 28th of May, Neville Chamberlain formed a government. We don't actually have an episode on that. Just we the only don't. Thing Maybe so we need far. to do that. <laughs> I will say something about this period of government. But mm-hmm. The Labour Party had been wiped out in the 1935 general election because of what Ramsay MacDonald did in 31. And so when you say the British government or parliament was very tolerable to the Nazis, we're talking about a massive, massive number of Conservative MPs. With yeah. a, with I mean, I did say government. I didn't say parliament. Yeah, we're yeah. not talking about... Mm. Um, but yeah, Chamberlain forming a government is not good news, is it, for Likes of Ronnie, Rob, Harold et al. No, Chamberlain wasn't known for having much in the way of friends. Um, But what he did have was a man called Joseph Ball. Oh, yeah. And uh, Joseph Ball had been an MI5 intelligence officer and he played a key role on the Zinoviev letter. What was that, John? Oh, more Labour history. 
1924, there was a fake letter purported to have been from a uh, the senior Soviet official uh, that demonstrated, apparently, the ties that the Labour government would have with the Soviet communists. Um, and it was published in the Daily Mail, of course, in 24, just in time for the general election and was thought to have cost Labour that election in 1924. And it was only subsequently proven to be a forgery. That's right. And Joseph Ball was the man who made sure it fell into the right hands. So it's also thought that it was most likely him that suggested Guy Burgess to be Jack McNamara's personal assistant. So he might have had a hand in that as well. Bit of a wrong one. Um, so Neville Chamberlain's now recruited him into Downing Street, where one of his roles was to set up a secret back channel to Mussolini that sort of circumvented the normal processes of diplo- okay. diplomacy. And uh, he eventually ended up briefing against Anthony Eden until he was forced to resign as Foreign Secretary. Chamberlain also asked Ball to run black ops on what he called this group of insurgents, these MPs that were pushing for rearmament. And he would brief against them, leak stories to the press about them, have them followed, tap their phones. And it was Ball who started to refer to this group of insurgents as the Glamour Boys, uh, isn't it? The title of uh, Chris Bryant's book. And he knew what he was doing with that title, didn't he? He did. It was a really loaded word. Glamour then didn't mean exactly what it means now. I mean, even now it's sort of a, it's associated with women and has a feminine. But at that time, it also had these sort of um, tones of witchcraft and spells and enchantment. And it was sort of, referred to female bewitchment glamour. So it not only insinuated that they were effeminate, but that they somehow were involved in the black arts. Nothing to do with glam rock. Like Nothing to Slade do with glam rock. Very different. I don't think Slade were dealing with black magic. I no, don't think no. so. <laughs> so this group continues to rebel and abstain from votes, but they have to be careful as their positions and reputations and personal lives and freedoms are constantly on the line. Yes. So in March 1938, the Wehrmacht crossed the Austrian border. And by the end of the month, Austria is incorporated into the Reich. Austrian Jews are driven out. Austrian gypsies are sent to camps. The Anschluss, which means joining or connection, is now complete. I do love when you say German words, as you do it with such a fine German accent. When we started, do, when you started doing this podcast, you were just learning German. And since oh, then, I wasn't you've got, just learning German. No, well, you've got more and more German into since it. I was doing A-levels. You? Yeah. You've just been doing more and more conversation classes. And, and back two years ago, you were on the Anschluss. Now you've got the Anschluss. It's got a great... Great oh, feeling, Angela. I apparently speak German with a Dutch accent. Oh, I've, really? What's I've that discovered. based on? Um, well, when I first learned German wow. I, at school, I my teacher was from very near the Dutch border. Interesting. And that's where I first learned it from. And I very often, I was chatting to a waiter in a restaurant when I was in Berlin. And he asked where I was from and I said I was from England and he just wouldn't believe me. Wow. A, I think a, because English people never speak German. That's, that's compliment your German. Yeah, and B, he was like, I would have said Netherlands. I said, everyone says that. And then... I asked my German conversation partner, who I yeah. speak to every week, and she went, oh, yeah, no, you do sound Dutch. I was That's like, yeah, well, no one's ever told me. <laughs> well, yeah. anyway, I love the way you say Anschluss uh, and uh, <laughs> Reich and all these words. But now, with the Anschluss, uh, yeah. Britain has to act, doesn't it? No, John. Again, the response was pretty muted, even though he's marched into Austria. Chamberlain said that the new Foreign Secretary, Lord Halifax, had given his German counterpart a grave warning. And I think at this point, it feels like they're like sort of ineffective yes. parents just going, now, come on, Hitler, I'm going to count to ten. Yes. And th- th- just stop it. Yeah. You know, and they're now on like nine and, I'm nine nine and a quarter. Yes, I mean yes, it. Yes, I mean I'm it. nearly there. Oh, don't make me. Don't make <laughs> they're me. They're not actually You're... issuing any sort of... Right. Um, in fact, they've 
continued to find ways to praise Hitler, didn't uh, they? And they said the terms of the treaty with regards to Austria were irrational anyway. Yes, they said that if he invaded Czechoslovakia, a third of the Czechs would desert to Germany anyway. Wow. So um, it seemed that Chamberlain and Ball's commitment to appeasement was pretty fixed. Let's take another break there, Angela, and see what happens when we come back. Yes. As you may know, We Are History is not mine and John's main gig, but it is a complete passion project that we love making. However, we've only been able to make this many series because of the support we've had from you, our listeners and subscribers. So thank you. And in particular this week, we want to give a big shout out to... Caroline Roosman. Katie Marie Young. Wendy Bayliss. LF0984. Are you related to Elon Musk? <laughs> <laughs> and WL. Oh, that's a bit a mysterious, serious, isn't it? Isn't it? We've got a couple of spies listening, I think, Ooh, Fantastic. Brilliant. The eagle has landed. No. Um, thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate your support. And if you want to join our Patreon, you can go to www. Who says www. anymore? No one. No one says. I started saying it when no one says that anymore. Just patreon.com slash we are history. That'll get you there. Fantastic. Welcome back. We are in 1938 and Hitler is literally pushing boundaries in Germany while the British government sort of rolls their eyes and goes, well, boys will be boys. Yes, except for this core of insurgents who are really pushing that Britain should get ready for war and be ready to honour their responsibilities as part of a League of Nations. Right. These opponents of appeasement now start to organise. There's about two dozen of them and with nearly a third of them what Chris Bryant in his book calls queer or nearly queer. Right. And many of them have first-hand experience of the atrocities that are happening in Germany from having spent so much time visiting there. That's what's so interesting about this whole story actually is that it's because they were gay they were attracted to the German exactly. life and they were the first to see the victims of Hitler and sort of had their eyes opened earlier than the rest of the British people. Exactly. On the 14th of September Hitler starts amassing troops on the Czech border and Chamberlain announces he would pay him a visit. Betty shit himself. Thank you for that image, Angela. <laughs> Chamberlain was absolutely convinced he could do business with Hitler, but three hours of meetings produced nothing of substance. Chamberlain then meets with French Prime Minister Deladier and they propose that the Czech president should surrender the Sudetenland in exchange for a guarantee of ter territorial independence in the rest of Czechoslovakia. Not going to end well, Angela. Mm. Chamberlain goes back to Hitler, but he changes his demands, saying Czechoslovakia should be parceled out between Germany, Hungary and Poland. Hitler threatens to mobilise in Czechoslovakia. It's not going well. It's just not going well. It's not, no. So in London, the mood is sombre now. There's air raid notices going up alongside notices about where to buy gas masks and trenches are being dug in parks. So the people are sensing, yeah. you know, something bad is is coming. And Chamberlain does this speech in Parliament detailing exactly what's happened over the past two months. And during the speech, a note arrives on foreign office paper and it has an invite on it from Hitler to meet with Chamberlain the following morning along with Mussolini and Deladier of France. Well, that's a coincidence. That's my dream dinner party coming <laughs> up, Angela. Oh, well, there you go. Deladier, you sit next to Benito. <laughs> <laughs> we had to go veggie because Adolf's yeah. insisted. Uh, anyway, everyone in the chamber except the glamour boys rise to their feet and cheer. They wow. think this is brilliant. He's going to go and he's going to sort it out tomorrow. Yes, well, so at 1.30 the next morning, Hitler, Chamberlain and Deladier agree a proposal that ceded the Sudetenland to Germany at 10 o'clock 
on the sole promise that he would go no further. Pinky promise, yes. At the last minute of this meeting, Chamberlain goes back to Hitler and asks him to sign an Anglo-German agreement. It was three paragraphs um, that were, quote, symbolic of the desire of our two peoples never to go to war again. Hitler nonchalantly signs it. John, I feel like you might be able to do an impression here of what happens next. I feel like you've got this in your locker. I have in my hand a piece of a paper or some shit. Yeah. I bet it wasn't even the same piece of paper. I just bet he just took his milk bill out of his pocket. Yeah, I'll use this. Yeah, yeah, I'll that'll do. Wave a bit of paper. Yeah, it's the famous bit of paper he waved when he got off the plane and proclaims uh, from the balcony of Buckingham Palace to have secured peace for our time. Yes, Irony flashing up Absolutely. Here. It wasn't I feel like enter. the QI alarm going yeah, yeah, off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there's jubilation. There are people calling for a Chamberlain Day. He's the hero. Yeah. Except for the insurgents who just remain depressed and infuriated. Ronnie Cartland told the press exactly what he thought of yeah. what Chamberlain had done. Uh, Harold Nicholson referred to it as the Munich capitulation. Yeah, Churchill was jeered, wasn't he, when he said to the House, we have sustained a total and unmitigated defeat, to which Nancy Astor screamed, nonsense. Yeah. That's how she said it, like that. Nonsense, Nonsense, she said. Yeah. But Joseph Ball put his dirty tricks machine to work to shut them up. The press attacked them. They received threats. And for obvious reasons, these queer, nearly queer, homosexual, however you want to describe them, MPs, feared rocking the boat too much. Yes, of course. This is until the 9th and 10th of November 1938, which became known as Kristallnacht, when thugs ran amok through Germany and Austria, smashing windows of Jewish businessmen and murdering Jewish people. Mm. All supposedly uh, retaliation for the murder of a German diplomat by a Polish-Jewish teenager. Yeah. These actions even managed to shock the Times newspaper who previously praised Hitler's efforts like this as clearing up. Yes. So for the glamour boys, the protection of Jewish people was now a moral imperative. Yes, they launched a weekly broadsheet called the Whitehall News uh, out of offices in Kensington with headlines like No More Surrender to Hitler and Mussolini and Wake Up Britain. Our only hope of national salvation is to arm, arm, arm. Yes, and the Home Secretary called them panic mongers, basically Project Fear. Yes. But on 16th of March, Hitler completed his takeover of Czechoslovakia, as predicted by the panic mongering glamour boy group. Yes. Yet they were still under attack in the Commons from Chamberlain loyalists and closet Nazi supporters, which there were quite a number of. But they continued to meet in secret with enhanced security, despite having been labelled warmongers. And despite events progressing as they did, 1939, Mm. Hitler was starting to make demands that Danzig, or Gdansk as we know it, uh, which had been made a semi-autonomous free city by the Treaty of Versailles, be restored to Germany. Yes, Chamberlain, at this point, wants to call a summer recess in Parliament (laughs) until October. But in the current climate and with Hitler's threats in the air, many, including the insurgents, obviously felt this was really inappropriate. I mean, after all, it was in the summer the previous year that Hitler made his moves on Czechoslovakia. What was to stop him doing the same to Poland? And they feared that Chamberlain would head off to Munich and try and appease him again. A motion was tabled by the opposition Liberals to bring the return of Parliament after the summer recess forward to the 21st of August. Yeah, there was this huge debate, quite a famous debate, and it got quite fierce. And Chamberlain really went on the offensive and started to show himself up for who he really was, I think. And the government rebels... They knew that now wasn't the time for Chamberlain to be stirring up animosity with the opposition. If war's coming, he needs to foster unity in the House. Ronnie Cartland was particularly incensed, wasn't he? After a conversation with Churchill in the gents, he went back into the House determined to speak his mind. 
Uh, and when called to speak, he said that Chamberlain's speech had deeply disturbed. Yeah, this was a really brave act yeah. from Ronnie Cartland, what he does in this session. He said in his speech, quite prophetically, we are in the situation that within a month we may be going to fight and we may be going to die, to which there was laughter. Right. And he responded, it's all very well, honourable gentlemen, laughing. Bear in mind, he's in government, you know, yeah, he's yeah. on the same benches. There are thousands of young men at the moment in training camps and giving up their holiday. And the least we can do here, if we're not going to meet together from time to time and keep Parliament in session, is to show that we have immense faith in this democratic institution. And it silenced them. In all, his speech was 12 minutes long, but it hit home. And Churchill thumped him on the back saying, well done, my boy, well done. A little bit patronising, Churchill, but fine. Uh, the government still won through, though. Ronnie Cartland knew that the chief whip could drive anything through. He also knew that he had ruined his political future, didn't he? Just, you know, mm. Despite having been at the top of the list of MPs, destined to be a future Home or Foreign Secretary. Yeah, I mean, he's only in his 20s yeah. at this point. To stand up to Chamberlain yeah. you know, as yeah. a new boy in the House was pretty brave, especially with his background, yes, you know, really opening himself up to exposure. Um, within days, there were calls for Ronnie to be expelled from Parliament, be hanged as a traitor. So the summer recess starts and the Glamour Boys start spending a pretty normal summer doing what they do with family, parties, so on. Ronnie spent a lot of time with his family, with Barbara, and he also took part in army training. He, they, they wanted to put their money where their mouth was, I think, these people that were yeah. pro-rearmament. And um, he just awaited his parliamentary fate. And 22nd of August, Hitler signed a non-aggression pact with Russia. Two days later, Parliament was summoned. Turns out the whole recess debate massive waste of time. Yeah, they got recalled anyway. Yeah. Um, Ronnie wrote, actually, that when the House gathered again, the 500 or so MPs that were present were, quote, more silent than usual, more serious, but without any sign of fear. Chamberlain, looking pretty grave, announces the government's intention to take an emergency powers bill through Parliament and told the House that the international position has steadily deteriorated until today we find ourselves confronted with the imminent peril of war. And the Glamour Boys all stood up and shouted, told you! No, no, they didn't. They bit their tongues and heeded Chamberlain's calls for unity. They thought that was the more sensible option. On 31st of August, the government began to evacuate three million women and children from areas of Kent and South East London that they thought most at risk from air attack. Yeah, for Jack McNamara, who was an officer in the London Irish Rifles, it all became very real. Territorial units were now being fully incorporated into the General Army. Things were moving. Then, 1st of September 1939, you probably don't know anything about this, but Hitler invaded Poland, just as the Glamour Boys had predicted he would. I'm not sure they said he'd do it on the 1st of September. Not on that day, but they <laughs> no. knew that this yeah, was coming. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Parliament was summoned again. Chamberlain said he had issued an ultimatum to the German government requiring assurances that they promptly withdraw their forces from Polish territory. Here he goes again. Now, I mean it, Hitler. When I get to 10, there's going to be trouble. Nine and six eighths, nine and seven eighths. Yeah. He's just yeah. not giving him a proper... <laughs> Insurgents were furious at this delay to declare war. When Parliament was called again the next day, they all felt sure that this was it. But still, Chamberlain refused to give a time limit to the ultimatum. Deputy Labour leader Arthur Greenwood, he stands up to give a speech in yeah. Parliament. And 
it was incredible what happens because there's this wave of support, not just from the opposition benches, but from the government benches yeah. too. Finally, they're just so fed up with Neville yeah. Chamberlain not taking action. They were clearly exasperated with the leadership. And this voice that they, we think might be Bob Boothby, nobody could quite agree who it was, right. but a voice from the government benches shouted, you speak for England. Right. To the opposition uh, deputy who'd stood up. And then the whole chamber starts ringing with cries of speak for England. And Arthur Greenwood gives a speech that people wanted to hear. He, plain speaking, to the point, and even the most loyal Chamberlain supporters are cheering him. Because, right. I mean, it, you could, outside Parliament, there were blackout regulations were being enforced, there were sandbags, yep. but it all seemed inevitable. And the reasons for this prevaricating seemed not to make sense anymore. War was coming. Yeah, I mean, he'd just set himself on a path, Chamberlain, wouldn't he? He took, was yeah. so slow to realise what was happening. Yeah. Afterwards, the Cabinet forced Chamberlain to hold a Cabinet meeting. I bet they did. And they told him that if he didn't declare war, the next time the House sat, he would be removed from office. And the next morning, the papers reported the ultimatum that Chamberlain gave in a final note to the German government that unless they withdraw from Poland by 11am on Sunday the 3rd of September, a state of war would exist between the two countries. Yes, no one's heard that famous radio broadcast by Chamberlain, but the bit that you may not always hear is a bit immediately afterwards, where he starts to go, you will realise how a bitter disappointment this is for me. And it's like, it's not about you, not about mate. Me. You're not going off to bloody northern France to be outflanked by the Nazis. Yeah. So he was, even then, he was making it all about himself. Anyway, the Glamour Boys... Those not with their respective battalions gathered together on Sunday morning to listen to Chamberlain's declaration of war. And that was that. World War II had started. The Glamour Boys thought it was inevitable, and it was. Now let's finish up by seeing what our core group of Glamour Boys did in the war. Yeah, it makes a pretty sad reading, I'm afraid. Oh dear. Um, these guys that have stood up for, for what they knew was coming. Um, Ronnie Cartland, he joined the Royal Artillery. He went off as part of the British Expeditionary Force in 1940. He was in charge of anti-tank armoury at Cassel, a little fortress town between Calais and Dunkirk. Wow. And his job was to keep the Germans back so more people could be evacuated. And one night when he was setting off back to Dunkirk, he was captured by Germans and shot in the head. Wow. And he was like tipped for the top politically. Yeah. yeah. Rob Bernays had a civilian job at first, then enlisted on ordinary guard duty. He then went on to do morale-boosting lectures for troops and on a trip to Greece, his plane was lost somewhere over the Adriatic. Yep, Cazalet became a liaison officer with the Free Poles and he travelled around the world visiting troops and working with them and he was killed when his aircraft tried to take off in Gibraltar and crashed. And Jack McNamara was killed in Italy when visiting a battalion of the 1st London Irish Regiment. Yeah, so it's such a fascinating story. Please do read the book because there's so much more to it. And I wanted to cover it because it really shows how... These people play such a key part in what happened and yeah. opposing appeasement, yet no one knows their names really or what they did. Yeah. And especially because they all died in action pretty yes. much. Most of them did. I think a couple of, Hal Nickerson survived and a couple of others, but most of them, they were just written out of that history because... You know, their homosexuality was an important factor in the story. The fact yes. that that's why they were going to that's Germany. That's why they were so alert. And why they were so to... alert. So yeah, it was just yeah. sort of written out. Yes. Uh, that's fascinating. Well, thank you, Chris Bryant, for that yeah. book. Yeah, um, I did. I listened to an interview with Chris Bryant, actually, about the book and his sort of motivations for writing it. And he said something really interesting. He said how this story really goes against that common stereotype of gay men as being lily-livered cowards and effeminate right. and weak. Yes. You know, that's the sort of how gay men are portrayed. But these men were fighters. They stood up. 
They, on the spur of the moment, they did really brave things, be it that speech in Parliament, be yeah. it going to fight in the war. They went to fight and many of them died doing so. So, you know, it's, yet their stories aren't... Oh, I forgot. I've forgotten. Well, um, thank you, Angela. That was really interesting. And I'm, um, I'll am i be reading Chris's book and another fascinating episode from the bookshelves of Angela Barnes. We'll be back mm. next week with another episode of We Are History. Yes. Uh, Thanks for listening. As always, please do go to our... I keep plugging the Twitter and that. We're a bit... Yeah, we don't you know, We're Just still on there occasionally, the so have a look. Um, join the Patreon if you'd like extra bits and bobs. Give us some money. Patreon.com slash We Are History. Go to We Are History on Instagram because I think that's more active yeah. than the Twitter. And while I'm here, I want to do a little plug, John, because I am on tour. Oh, that's a good show. With my comedy show, Hot Mess, which John's seen. It's a great show. Uh, he saw an early preview and then you saw the final version. It's great. Everyone so, go and see it. Thank you. I am like pinching him really hard to make him say oh, that. The um, there are tickets available from my website, angelabarnescomedy.co.uk. I am on the road till the end of November. So do come and join me. And it's not it's not about history. Um no, but so, it's historical. But it's, it's historical. It's it, historic well, it, comedy. It, yes, there you go. Historic comedy. Groundbreaking. Uh, we'll be back next week, guys. Thank you for listening. Bye. Bye. We Are History is written and presented by Angela Barnes and John O'Farrell, with audio production by me, Simon Williams. The lead producer is Anne-Marie Luff, and the group editor is Andrew Harrison, with artwork by James Parrott. We Are History is a Podmasters production. Listener.